everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Today's teaching is anchored in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, which says, This time the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Welcome to Discovery Church. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I am so delighted that you're here of all days today. We are wrapping up uh, this week and next week a series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Further Up and Further In. And the whole idea behind this series is so often, I think, in spiritual world, particularly in Christianity and in the church, there can be this idea that being a follower of Jesus is likened to like there's a line in the sand and the story goes, once upon a time I was on this side, but now I'm on this side. And that, that's it. That's all she wrote. Now we just like serve until our knuckles bleed and wait for Jesus to come back. Like that's all there is to do. And what if there's more? What if the journey of following Jesus is not a one-step journey over a line, but what if it's a long obedience in a, in a single direction? What if there are actually even stages that happen along the way? And there have been folks over the years that have said, hey, we want to know more about this. We want to study this and see, are there, are there stages that we could actually identify and say, most people move through life, through their spiritual maturity in such a way as this. And so this week we are on the final stage, which is stage six. If you've missed stages so far, let me give you, this will be like rapid fire, like just hold on to your seat for a second here as we go through this. Stage one is really this, this time of like, I'm becoming aware, I'm starting to wake up to a spiritual world around me. Oftentimes too, this is just like being born. This is how babies engage with the world of, there is deep theology that happens when a baby makes eye contact with its mom or with its dad. And what that's doing in the soul of that little guy or gal, that matters. Stage two really gets more into this idea of, okay, now I'm becoming aware of this spiritual world, and I might even be pursuing somebody to disciple me, or maybe that's somebody's just coming along to mentor me, and that's a part of my journey right now. I'm just learning. I'm learning information. I'm learning about the Bible. I'm learning about prayer. I'm learning theology and doctrine, but it's just a lot of learning. And oftentimes, if you're moving through stage two, all of this learning needs to go somewhere. And so you move into stage three, which can oftentimes be experiences like, I, I'm serving. I'm just getting involved. I'm, I'm involved in community. My experience of community in the church, super rich and super deep. But also the things that I'm getting involved in, the way that I'm becoming aware of how I'm wired and how I can be involved in the world, all of those things are starting to come together in a way where being involved in the, with the marginalized and with the poor and with people who are in need, it just becomes a part of how you live and how you work, and it's amazing. And if you do that long enough, if you stare into the faces of the poor and the needy and the hurting long enough, the things that you were taught in stage two, combined with the experience of everything you're having in stage three, begin to bubble up some questions. 
And oftentimes for folks, stage four is a season in their spiritual journey where they're going, man, I don't know that at least the way that I understood the answer back in stage two, I don't know if that works anymore. And as we talked about this a few weeks ago, we talked about the idea of it's like watching a, a young child lose a tooth. That There's something bigger and better that's getting ready to grow in its place. But if you've never experienced it before, all you feel is uncomfortable and a little bit of pain and some blood in your mouth. And it hurts. And, and stage four is oftentimes a season of life that's just pretty disorienting. Uh, the, the common word for this in our world today, especially in church world, is deconstruction. I was given some answers that made a lot of sense in stage two. But now I'm having to dismantle them and then maybe put them back together. And for some folks, they might never get answers to those questions. And for some folks, they find new answers, better answers, an adult tooth growing in in its place. And the way that I love to talk about stage five is if stage four is starting to lose baby teeth, stage five is like a crazy mountain hillbilly just looking you in the face and smiling like crazy and they're missing half their teeth and they don't really care. They're just happy to be there. And stage five is really this season where you're okay with the tension, that there are some things that you may have answers to and there may be other things that you don't have answers to. You also become a little bit more okay going, my church, like where I go to be fed spiritually, is amazing. But it's also not the only source. There are mentors. There are other faith traditions. There are other things going on. And we talked last week about this idea. St. Augustine had this quote, all truth is God's truth. And that in stage five, you just become a student of truth. <laughs> like you just, you just want to know it and find it wherever it may be. And how grand of a God he must be that instead of saying, I will take the only one thing and locate it in only one place, that he like sprinkles it around like, like, a, like a person on parade throwing candy. And that truth ends up all over the world. And in stage five, you begin to just look for that and have an ear for that. I also, in my own experience, have just found most folks in stage five, things of this world that they've been attached to, whether those are good things or bad things, it could be finances, it could be relationships, it could be the church and their doctrine and their theology, all become things that you start to hold a little bit more loosely because the thing that matters the most in that time is not having the right answers, but knowing the source of all life. And this experience of being God's beloved becomes the thing. You're, you're just so eager to lean in and know better every day. Do you love me again today? In spite of everything that I've done, in spite of all that's been done to me, am I still something that you delight in? And you find that the answer daily in every moment is yes. There's a poem called Covenant written by a gal named Margaret Halasaka, Halaska, excuse me. And I think if, if we're gonna now today start leaning into like stage six, this is the last one. What does it look like as you start leaning into stage six? And I think she captures the end of stage five beautifully. And she says this, God knocks at my door, seeking a home for his son. Rent is cheap, I say. I don't want to rent. I want to buy, says God. I'm not sure I want to sell, but you might come in and look around. I think I will, says God. I might let you have a room or two. I like it, says God. I'll take the two. You might decide to give me more someday. I can wait, says God. I'd like to give you more, but it's difficult. I, I need some space for me. I know, 
says God. But I'll wait. I like what I see. Hmm. Maybe I can let you have another room. I really don't need that much. Thanks, says God. I'll take it. I like what I see. I'd like to give you the whole house, but I'm not sure. Think on it, says God. I wouldn't put you out. Your house would be mine, and my son would live in it. You'd have more space than you'd ever had before. I don't understand at all. I know, says God, but I can't tell you about that. You'll have to discover it for yourself. That can only happen if you let me have the whole house. It's a bit risky, I say. Yes, says God, but try me. I'm not sure. I'll let you know. I can wait, says God. I like what I see. Stage five, I find, in my own story, is a season of I'm renting out rooms, renting out rooms, all the while feeling this invitational welcome from God to say, why don't you just give me the whole thing? Give me your whole life. And being both confused at what that might look like and also elated at the thought of what that could be and mean. Uh, we've been putting up a graph. We don't have it for today, but how many folks in their life actually reach what we would call a stage six? It's such a small percentage. And for so many of us in the room, this may not be a stage in your spiritual journey that you ever get to, and that is okay. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But for me, in my role in our church family, my hope is that today is one of painting a picture of a place that maybe you've never been to, a place that maybe you never even knew existed, and that you would know, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, the depth of the invitation of the pilgrimage that your father is inviting you on. To do that today, I, I um, was not joking last week when I said teaching about stage five is like teaching the class that I'm taking at the same time. And so if we're in stage six, I am not equipped to do that today. So I am calling in uh, some help. And I put out my first uh, ask is to my dear friend, Debbie Swanson. Um, so Debbie, I'm going to have, why don't you and Howard both come up? But Howard actually introduced me to Debbie. Um, I was on a sabbatical a couple years ago and was looking for somebody that could just sit with me and be a spiritual director for that time. And Debbie then for the next two years um, served so graciously as my spiritual director. And um, this is a woman that I trust so deeply. And I love how scripture loves to talk about the church as family and that there are spiritual mothers and fathers. And you have been that to me. So when I called Debbie and said, hey, we're talking about stages. You taught me this, actually, at Denver Seminary, but um, would you mind coming? And she said, yes, I was out of my mind, excited. I could not believe it. And as we talked a little bit more, the thought of, like, can we invite Howard? Should we invite Howard? What would that be like, wanting to honor time and all those things? Um, it just made the most sense for you to get to meet both of them. And so Howard, I met through some time on Young Life staff. Um, and got to know each other a little bit there, but in that sabbatical, uh, Howard served as my sabbatical coach and really helped me structure those few months to go, how do you get the most out of this time? Some of that ended with me in a cohort that these two lead called the Praxis uh, here in the Denver area, which is incredible, and Howard then served as my spiritual director this whole last year. 
And as I've now entered into another program at Denver Seminary, these two both serve as some of the professors of that program in spiritual direction and formation down at Denver Sem. Um, Howard, I would say the same of you, that you have been a spiritual father to me and the way that you've cared for my soul and prayed over me, both of you, gosh. You've just, you both have held me in really gnarly seasons and beauty has come of it. And I'm convinced, at least in some ways, that that is because of your faithful prayers for me and over me. So I'm delighted for you to have these two today. Their professional resumes are extensive. Um, I think it would serve as enough for today for me to just tell you these are two people that I trust with my life and my soul. And I hope that that's enough. So here's what we're going to do with our time. Uh, you're going to get to hear both of their stories just in, in little tiny bits, but they'll just be helping identify through the course of their own life story, where were these stages showing up for me? And our hope today is that as we get into stage six, that we're beginning to paint that picture of what stage six is like. So, Debbie, tell us a little bit of your story. Thanks, Chris. And you may have thought that season we spent together, you were in an early place, you were in a beautiful place. And I saw within you such a yearning and desire and longing for God. It was amazing to me. So in the midst of our hot messes, God was very present there. And I feel honored that I could just companion you as he led you through what he was up to. And now look. <laughs> so, to God. <laughs> okay. Um, my story is not a, um, a story of clear, distinct stages. Many of mine wrapped around one another, went forward and backwards, and I didn't come to know the Lord until I was, what, I was trying to figure that out, 25, maybe? It was um, prompted after the birth of our first child. I married um, Eric Swanson, and um, it, if this is TMI, it, it was... Courtney came about as a conception failure, and I was on my way to going to pre-dental school. So it got me thinking, I'm going to be a mother now instead of a dentist. Um, what does that mean? And just the, the thought of carrying a child, and a child that overcame contraception, I, at that point, knew that God was involved in this. I was raised in an Italian Catholic family. We went to church and um, so I got my foundations within the Catholic church. So I knew deep within me that God had something to do with Courtney coming to us. And so that just, I started going back to, to mass. I prayed, I, just it was there's just a stirring and so Courtney was born um, and my husband was in the Navy and he was a submariner and he was gone and we had to move from Maine to South Carolina so we did and we got to South Carolina little Courtney and I um, and we started hearing these rumors of the the executive officer and his wife on the boat on the submarine had found Jesus and so immediately being the not nice person I was at the time, I said, oh, don't inv invite Bob and Bar uh, Bonnie to any of our Navy parties because Jesus always comes. And that, he, such a killjoy, buzz, buzzkill. Little did I know that, um, so anyway, I kind of kept distance. I loved Bonnie. She was, she was the quintessential Navy wife and helped me with a whole lot of things Navy-ish. 
Well, they were leaving for their first patrol, meaning that they were on, the guys were getting ready to go for three months. There would be no communication. I'd be home alone. And so Bob and Bonnie were throwing a party, and I was, I made the cake, and I had to drop it off at their house. And I was really scared. And Eric went with me, because I didn't know if they would start chanting the minute I walked in, or I had no clue what this Jesus thing meant. And we, we walked in, and the kids were on the floor listening to Bible records on a Sunday afternoon, and it was beautiful outside. And I thought, oh, this is really, I, I want to be out of here. So I, I put the cake down, but then Bob, the executive officer, and you don't say no to him, said to Eric, let's go to the store. I have something I have to get, which left me alone with Bonnie. And I really started getting scared. But she was very sweet. She shared her testimony, which is one that was incredible. I've never heard anything like it. The one thing I noticed was there was something real. God intervened in something very real in their lives. And that's what I was searching for. I remember asking God in high school, if you're real, make my light blink. I want to know that you're real. But as Bonnie shared her story, that question was answered. And so Eric came back, we left, and then we started joking the whole time. She handed me, they were with the navigators, handed me a four spiritual laws tract. And Eric went upstairs to shower to get ready for the party. And I read the tract. And it, for some reason, I'd heard everything about this before. But I knew in that moment, Jesus died for me. If nobody else, he died for me. And this peace came over me, this assurance, this, wow, I, I don't have to wait till I die, because I really did think that my good works would outweigh my bad works, and that some, maybe I'd get to heaven, I wasn't sure, but I just knew that I knew. It was not a cognitive knowing, it was an interior knowing. Well, um, they left the next, next two days later, and I was off on my own, and so Bonnie faithfully met with me every week. She discipled me, and some days she would come, and I was just so tired of all this. I wouldn't answer the door, but she kept coming back, and she kept, she kept after it, and so I went through all the Navigator series, um, and I have to tell you the state of my heart at that point. I thought that God got a really good deal when he got me, because I'm a three, I didn't know any of this terminology, but I was a go-getter, and I, I, would, I would go and get for God now. He, man, he, was, he, he picked the right person. I'm, I'm, I'm for you, Lord, I'm for you. Just watch what I can do. So um, Bonnie discipled me for those three months. They came back. I thought Eric would divorce me because I had changed so much. Um, so the whole ministry was praying about that. So I waited a couple days, and I told Eric, I've become a Christian, and I can't go back. So if you need to leave, that's fine. And he said, no, because I kind of had an idea something was going on. So when I was on the boat, I started thinking about all this. And so I invited God into my life, which was really cool if you're a Baptist, because he was under the water in a boat, pre-baptized. <laughs> can't do any better than that. <laughs> So um, we started, I had to take the uh, Family Life seminar, seminar about two or three times because I really didn't get what the, at that point there, the submission thing. And so, <laughs> yeah, we worked at that one. But anyway, I'll be that as it made. We, we moved from um, South Carolina to Wheaton and I had our second son. At that point, uh, and we were, you know, going to church and doing Bible studies 
um, just just kind of getting to know this God thing. After Joel was born, I had a significant postpartum depression. It, I've never been out of control in my life, and I was then. And that, for the year, it was a year and a half, two years, it was a time of significant disorientation about who I am, who God is, what's my role in this life, how do you exist when you, you can hardly function. I'm a mother of two kids, Eric's gone. It was a, it was a significant, uh, serious disorientation. But at the end of that, God had brought me to a place interiorly where one day, in my living room floor, on my living living room floor, as Beth Moore says, sucking up carpet carpet fibers, I was laying on the floor, crying out, "Lord, if you want me, you can have me, but there's not much of me to get anymore." And I knew then that what I had been uh, invited into was real. And He used the verse in Isaiah where Isaiah took the, took the coal from, Isaiah, uh, from the altar and the angel touched it on Isaiah's lips and the angel said, your sins have been atoned for. And I knew that I knew that I was God's. So there's a oneness in that time, but there's also a two-ness. We then moved to um, St. Joseph, Michigan and got in involved with Bible Study Fellowship. And that was my, I would say my two, three stage, very, very intense Bible study. We ended up teaching the, the uh, Bible study class, um, just getting, getting the Bible into me. The one thing that I'm really grateful for is the founder of BSF was an English woman named Audrey Weatherwell Johnson. She had served in the China Inland Mission, China Bible Seminary, and at that age, and at that time, she was actually teaching at the seminary as a woman. That was not done in those days. She had broken off an engagement because her fiance wanted to go to Africa. She said, God called me to China, and so she remained single the rest of her life. And she would write the notes that we would read, and she would talk about God as her husband, as her beloved, as her everything. When she was in solitary, she said the, the sense of God's presence was so real that she could almost reach out and touch him. And I kept reading her notes, and the kind of relationship that Miss Johnson had with God began to stir in my heart, and that's what I wanted. I wanted that kind of relationship, not, God, tell me what to do, and I'll do it, which is what I, I was doing, but I wanted that intimacy. And during this stage, one day I was preparing for a Sunday school teaching, and just the reality that God was indwelling me. God just, I don't know what he did, he just, because I was teaching it, it was, became so real. And I, it took me back, and I went to Sunday school class to teach, and I stood up there going, I wonder if they can see Jesus in me. He's here, he's living in me. And it was such a profound experience that the, the Godhead would come and live within me. It changed me forever. And then a little bit later, 
I was, we were doing the study of Ephesians, and uh, Ephesians 2.20, um, Paul prayed I, that you might know the height, breadth, length, and depth, and be filled with the fullness of the knowledge of the love of God. Uh, it was just meditating on that, and God said, he, it wasn't audibly, but in my heart, I heard him say, Debbie, do you know that I love you? And I go, yes, I teach it all the time. And he goes, no, when have you tasted my love? And I could honestly say, never, Lord. But I knew at that moment, if I asked him, he would make it real. And I said, I've, I've never tasted your love, but I want to experience it. And it didn't happen in that moment, but within the next year, his reality that he loved me and that I was his beloved became so very real. So there's a three, four-ish <laughs> in there. So I meander all around the place. Um, we then moved to here, Colorado, and um, continued with Bible study fellowship and teaching the class. And uh, I was on staff at a, a church, and the pastor died in a car wreck. And so, and Eric had to get an, Eric's job at Rocky Flats ended, and so he had to get another job. So his job was in Albuquerque. So he was commuting. I was off the church staff. And um, I began missing the study of Bible study fellowship. So I enrolled at Denver Seminary just to take a class, no, no big deal. And I wasn't planning to go to seminary, never. And part of the way through Dr. Demarest's book about this thick, and I needed a dictionary to read it, he, God's, I kept asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do next? I, I'm not in BSF. I, I'm not on the church staff. What do you want? And he said, it came across to me, I am to be the image bearer of God. We were studying the Imago Dei. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, that's a purpose-driven life. Um, that's a good purpose, bear God's image. Oh, okay. But then about two weeks later in the same study, I said, Lord, What's this about? And he just, I didn't hear audible voices, but in my heart I understood that I was not to ask what should I do next. He said, ask me who you should become. Because I realized my, my image of God was askew and what I was presenting to others was not a correct imago dei. So every... And at that point, long story, I decided to go on with more seminary. So every seminary class I took, I said, Lord, how does this church history class inform who I am becoming? How does this theology class inform who I am becoming? And then I got involved with the Christian formation um, program, and that continued the formation process. And there were several other little mini I would say wall experiences for me during that time. Um, immediately after I graduated from seminary, um, that was 2009, I had been working for 10 years. Uh, in the meantime, Pastor Rick died. I walked with his wife for, until she got on her feet. Then my dad died. And I walked with a family until they got on her, we got on our feet. And then my mom decided she wanted to move out to Colorado. And so we moved out to Colorado and built her house. And I was finishing a seminary degree. <clears throat> and I was disposing of two households. And um, 2009, I crashed and burned 
in a way that I thought the early postpartum depression was bad, this was off the charts. I, I really don't know why I wasn't hospitalized, but I wasn't. But through that time, God did an interior work in me. And I, I can look back now and see he was just clearing out that which was taking up space so that his love could fill me in a deeper way. I used to imagine myself as a little sea sponge in the ocean, and that which was flowing around the sea sponge also flowed through it and touched every space, every atom, every cell within that sea sponge. And as I, on those, that, that time during those meditations, I, there is nowhere that you're not, Lord. And then I understood Paul's writing, it's in him we live and move and have our being. I'm not quite sure what stage that is, but that's what was taking place and what God was bringing into reality for me. Um, and at that point, I've, I, Zach mentioned it, church used to be my everything. Uh, and what happened is church was a place that I was able to return to and serve in, but it wasn't my source of joy. Being active in a church, active in Bible study fellowship, was really feeding me as much as it, I was helping others. But church took on a different role in my life. Christ was now feeding me. My joy came from him, and not so much what I was doing, but out of that place of, of being filled and being loved by God, my passion became, I want people to know this. I want people to taste this. I want people to know this is available for every single human being on this planet. And I, I want to work, work so that other people can know. One year during Bible study fellowship, we were reading Moses, and I, I fell in love with him. But my prayer began at that point, Lord, let my last third of my life be more fruitful than Moses' last third. Because if you looked at Moses' life, the first 40 in, in Egypt, the second 40 on the backside of a mountain, and the last 40 doing what God asked him to do. And I said, Lord, as I approach the end of my life, I want, it, I want to be more fruitful than anything that I've ever known. Not to make me feel good, but so that what you have poured, taken out of me and poured into me can bring others to you because they need to know of your love. They need to know that they are already loved and there's nothing we can do to make you love us more or love us less. So working out of four into five, I, I agree with Zach, that's it. I, 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 can't, I can't honestly say, I, don't, five, I, I can say five, but I'm not sure I can say six. I might dip into that at points, but one thing I can say is I am where I am, and that's okay. I, I, I'm not worried about, quote, getting to six, because it doesn't matter, because I have all that I need in Christ and his love and joy and acceptance and fulfillment in all that he is. Um, I guess I would sum it up by saying I am his, and he is mine, and that's all that matters. <laughs> I, wanna, um, I think the spiral would be cool. Okay. 
Yeah, I got this from my spiritual director. Um, there is, and if, Cody, if you want to put that up, uh, you can. My spiritual director said our spiritual growth is, is like a spiral, that God is moving us deeper into his heart. Yeah, and you can see that. And at different points in our life, say at the top of the spiral, let's say on the top, that would be your left, top left, there's, you know, it begins to go down. Let's say that um, maybe you were, we've been dealing, God deals with something about fear in our lives. And so we, we get through that and we continue around on the spiral, but you know, and a couple of years later, we come to that same point underneath where we met the, you know, did some work around fear. And now we find God's doing work around fear again. And our first response is to just go, oh my gosh, it must have not been real. I lost everything I gained in that first, the first level. And no, we had to get healthy enough so that we could face fear now at a deeper level. And I think for me, my story is more about the spiral. He just took me down into deeper levels into the heart of God. And so there is a descent, um, and many of the writers have written about this, that just like all the rivers flow to the ocean, we too flow into the descent deep in, into Christ's heart. We don't lose anything. God's, nothing is wasted. We just sometimes have to be healthy enough. And so when people in my directees come to me and say, I, I don't know what's wrong. I, I, I thought I dealt with this. And I said, you did deal with it. But God sees you're healthy enough. You can go down a deeper, deeper level. Because these things have, it's like an iceberg. We see the top part, and then beneath is a whole other part of the iceberg submerged deep within us, and God is going after that. Is that? Okay. Cool. Thanks, Debbie. Welcome. Um, more on this, too, that we'll get in. You'll see this again next week, um, for sure. But I'm excited for you to also hear Howard's story and how he's grown and where he's at now and a little bit more in the stage six as well. Thank you. Ready for another story? Well, I was, uh, well, and I appreciate, Zach, the way you framed the whole idea of the journey or the development in stages in the context of our following of Jesus. Um, because that's been my experience, is that the whole journey has been one that God has been initiating, uh, inviting, uh, guiding, and leading. And sometimes it's easy to have the assumption that, well, I'm the one making the decisions to respond. You know, I choose to accept Christ, or I choose to accept a call to ministry, or I choose to... Uh, follow God's lead in this way. Uh, but it's helpful, at least it's been helpful for me to remember that God is the one that's initiating. God is inviting. Uh, and God and Jesus is the Lord of the journey. And I kind of came to that conclusion just looking back over my own story. And my story, actually, the chronology and the stage development uh, sort of parallel pretty easily. So uh, I think maybe because I'm simple-minded, so it's easier for me to think about it that way. Uh, 
And I was raised in Arkansas, so that's another reason I'm simple-minded. Uh, I do have shoes on today, though, so. Uh, but I, uh, I was an only child of church-going parents, and we went to a church uh, that in rural Arkansas that was small. Uh, unlike Discovery, it had boring sermons and uh, a choir that sang out of tune. Uh, but there was something unique about that experience in church. Uh, it was unlike home. It was unlike school. It was unlike being with friends. There was that, I, didn't, I couldn't have said this at the time, but there was something otherworldly or transcendent about being in that community, being in that space. Um, and that was my first sort of taste of a discovery of God. Uh, and I couldn't articulate that whatsoever. The second mark in that first stage of discovering God was I was in the fifth grade, and my, my dad got very sick, and uh, literally on a deathbed. And really for the first time, we prayed as a family uh, that God would spare his life. And God did. And he lived another 30 years or so after that. And that experience uh, was really shifted, it really shifted my understanding of who God was. All of a sudden, it felt like that God had all the chips, that God had done this favor for me in sparing my dad, and now I sort of owed God. Well, it didn't, that, rea that sense didn't really change much in terms of how I lived or how I related to God, except I just felt guilty about a lot of stuff. And, and that was a, about the extent of my recognition of God until I got to college and fell in with a young life crowd and uh, uh, started hanging out and going to these meetings. Uh, I was really clueless. Uh, all these people were cool and fun and sober at the same time. And I'd never seen that before. Uh, and so by the end of that fall semester, uh, I made a real clear decision to follow Jesus and gave my life as best as I could understand it uh, to Jesus at that time. And then just a month later, I was leading uh, high school kids uh, in Bible studies and teaching them about what it meant to follow Jesus that I knew that much about. And, uh, but I had this hunger for learning and dove into Bible study with friends uh, in this stage two experience of learning and growing. And in fact, uh, this was a pretty good example of what that time was like. We, a group of us would uh, drive over to Dallas, about an hour drive from Fort Worth where I was going to school, because we heard that the best Bible teacher was in this church. And so every Sunday we would drive to hear the best Bible teaching, you know, not just any old Bible teaching, but the, the best. And, and so this, that was sort of the hallmark for the next seven or eight years for me in college and then in seminary of just learning uh, wanting to uh, be correct, 
and write and know as much as I can know about this God. And, and it was fun. There was a joy in that. Uh, it was wonderful and beautiful, and it was in community and associated strongly with uh, my group, which was Young Life at the time. And, uh, and then upon graduating from seminary, sort of this abrupt movement from learning into production, into doing, full-time work. And my context was ministry, but I, I think it could be true of whatever your profession or field might be. We shift from that learning in college or graduate school, and then we're you know, catapulted into the work world. And it's this radical shift from knowing and learning to doing. And I jumped in with both feet and wanted to make things happen for Jesus. That was sort of my uh, mental image of my calling. And uh, I had a sense of justice growing up uh, in Arkansas, that racism was an awful evil. And I actually had a sense of calling to uh, go back to Arkansas and uh, be a pastor of a biracial church. That never happened, but what I, what I did do, or what God did lead me into, was working uh, in the inner city in Fort Worth with kids from the projects, and uh, poured myself in, into that, uh, along with Janice, whom I married along the way while I was in seminary, and we lived in that community. And again, just... Uh, unstintingly gave ourselves to the work and that continued for seven or eight years and until uh, I started noticing this spiritual dehydration uh, going on in my in my heart in my soul and beginning to ask questions like is this all there is uh, just working really hard and seeing some fruit, but not as much as I really wanted to see. Two little kids at home. Uh, Janice was beginning to have uh, ulcers and heart palpitations uh, because I was gone all the time. I was a ministry workaholic. Uh, and as I look back, what I now realize is that ministry actually became an idol. And Gen Jesus was a means to an end of my own success in ministry. And, and that led me at the end of stage three into what I would say a wall experience of really questioning God's goodness, questioning uh, my own identity, my own calling, uh, and just really at a place of confusion and despair. And about that time, God led me into an experience uh, that started stage four of an inner journey, which was a silent retreat uh, with a spiritual director. And four days of silence. Um, the only conversation that we had was uh, 45 minutes or so with the spiritual director. And I had never had you know, an hour of silence up to that point. So it took me about a day and a half to uh, finally quiet down enough to stop telling God what he needed to do and actually listen. 
And, and when I did, uh, Jesus became real and alive through the scriptures all over again. It was almost like a second conversion. Well, it was a second conversion. Uh, and the Jesus that I first met as a freshman in college, uh, I had that same vision of nearness and closeness and intimacy and belovedness uh, and freshness, uh, that, that Jesus was alive. He's risen. Uh, he's not just a person that I talk about or I tell high school kids about. No, he's someone that is real. And so that's, that started uh, an, a growing and deepening awareness of my own uh, emotional life, of relationships. I started coming alive emotionally uh, with God and with Janice, with my kids, uh, because God was alive in me. And, and then it, I got training as a spiritual director uh, along the way that was really more and more of this inner journey of discovering, oh, there is something called a spiritual journey. And I've been on it, actually, and God's been leading and guiding. Uh, and it's not just performing and working hard for God. There's actually a relationship here. And the key thing that happened on that retreat was uh, the verse that, that Jesus spoke to me loud and clear uh, was in John from John 15, where Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And that, I just embraced that, that, oh, I'm first and foremost Jesus' beloved friend. Sure, I'm still servant, but first and foremost, he calls me friend. And that, my whole life turned on that. And I, I think at that point, after a number of years of, of deepening and uh, experiencing more and more of, of God in silence and solitude, in meditating on the scriptures, uh, in being in community, sharing our journeys, I uh, was experiencing uh, an invitation to that outer journey, uh, stage five, of, of wanting to share this life with Jesus that I was experiencing, uh, not trying to make something happen, but joining God in what God was doing. So it, it, on the outside, it looked a lot like stage three, but it was coming from an entirely different place. It was coming from a place of love. Uh, and serving, and dissent. Um, and that's been a joy uh, to simply respond to what God is doing in the lives of my family, in the lives of my friends, in the lives of uh, people in the world, and, and joining him in that, uh, rather than this notion of trying to make something happen uh, for God. There's not a lot I have to say about uh, stage six, except that I, I've known a couple of people uh, who were alive at the time that I recognized, okay, this person is way advanced on the spiritual journey. The first, the first one was Vernon Grounds, who was president of Denver Seminary and chancellor. And um, 
I didn't know Vernon for very long before he died, but he still, in his 90s, would show up at his office at Denver Seminary, be the first one on campus early, early in the morning, and would run into him. And just to be in his presence uh, was to be enfolded in the love of Christ. He didn't have to say anything or do anything. Love just, the love of God just flowed through him. And to me, that's what stage six is about. It's, it's a person who embodies love, the love of Christ. Uh, the other person that, that I knew was Dallas Willard, and uh, very similar, the most kind and gentle person, and yet uh, a brilliant philosopher and teacher of the scriptures, uh, but was like he became as a little child and was meek uh, and was fully, I believe, into uh, stage six. I have uh, just a description that might be helpful of uh, stage six because it's, it's hard to pin down. Uh, but let me just share this with you and, as I finish my story. It says, uh, you will not be satisfied to let God lead you to holiness by paths that you cannot understand, or you will be satisfied to let God lead you. You will travel in darkness in which you no longer will be concerned with yourself and no longer compare yourselves with others. Those who have gone by that way have finally found out that holiness is in everything and that God is all around them. Having given up all desire to compete with others, they suddenly wake up and find that the joy of God is everywhere, and they are able to exult in the virtues and goodness of others more than they ever could have done in their, on their own. They are so dazzled by the reflection of God in the souls of the men they live with that they no longer have any power to condemn anything they see in another. Even in the greatest sinners, they can see virtues and goodness that no one else can find. As for themselves, if they even still consider themselves, they no longer dare to compare themselves with others. The idea has now become unthinkable. It is no longer a source for great suffering and lamentation. They have finally reached the point where they take their own insignificance for granted and are no longer interested in themselves. And then put it in the first person. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. If therefore I do anything or think anything or say anything or know anything or desire anything that is not purely for the love of God, it cannot give me peace or rest or fulfillment or joy. I think that's stage six. I can read about it. I can't share it from my own experience. That's awesome. Thanks to you both. Uh, it's been good having conversations with y'all about as, as you're processing the series and where am I, and we will talk about that more next week. But I think even as you may be identifying in different parts of Debbie or Howard's story, um, just a reminder that uh, for me with my kids, I don't look at my six-year-old son and go, I, I kind of love you, but I love you like only like I can love a six-year-old, but my 13-year-old, now that's like 
I love him, but when he's 40, then I'll really... When you're a son or a daughter of a father, he loves you exactly where you are. And so know that the, the rush that you may feel of like, man, I just, I need to get to this next thing, or I want to be more, do better, whatever it is, like, just know he calls you son or daughter. And that is, a, that is something that can lock you exactly in the place that you are to just simply be. So, um, Debbie, would you mind closing us with a prayer? Pray with me. I'd like to invite you, before I conclude, to just take a moment and notice what shimmered to you during this time? What reached out and touched you? What caught your attention? And I encourage you to have a conversation with God about that. That's an invitation from him. And Father, I thank you that you are always wooing and pursuing and chasing us, us with your love. And no matter what stage we find ourselves, you are there with us, delighting in us, loving us, laughing with us, enjoying us, and singing over us. And may we go forth into this day remembering that, that life is simply a journey walking with you and enjoying every step along the way. I pray your blessings upon Zach and this congregation, and thank you for the opportunity that we get to be here together loving you. Amen. <laughs>